today on the podcast, we talk about voting fraud and we talk about talking about voting fraud. Why is this a topic that everyone seems to be well, talking about when, as you'll learn very soon, the data on voting fraud prosecutions shows it's actually rare and not particularly consequential. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So as I mentioned at the top, today's episode is about voting fraud, but more specifically, it's about what happens when voting fraud is charged and prosecuted. For months, a team of Bloomberg reporters led by our Midwest correspondent, Alex Ebert, have been compiling data about the cases since November 2018, in which prosecutors across the country have charged people with voting fraud or won a voting fraud conviction. And they found that while the number of these prosecutions is not zero, it's in the low triple digits. Now, it's worth noting that there may be instances of voting fraud that weren't pursued by prosecutors or that the state officials just didn't know about and therefore wouldn't be included in this data set. But still, this data can give us a fascinating look into how voting fraud actually plays out in the real world. And as you'll hear in a moment, it's way less dramatic and way less consequential than some would have you believe. We're joined today by Alex, and I started off by asking him how he and his teammates collected all of the data they analyzed. Me and a group of over 20 other reporters reached out to secretaries of state, attorneys general, and some election commissions in all 50 states to see if we could get our hands on the different charges and prosecutions for voting fraud those states have seen since the 2018 midterms. And that's in, in every state? In every state. Um, 23 states didn't have any information for us. They couldn't find any charges or prosecutions. Um, and only three states didn't respond. So the Dakotas and Texas didn't want to play. But everyone else um, either said, hey, these are the charges and prosecutions we've seen, or we don't have any for you. Mm. Which is a, a data point in and of itself, if there's, if there's nothing there. It is, yeah. And with half of the states not being able to point to anything, it's one more data point you know, in these conversations about, is this a serious problem um, in many parts of the country? And, and I think that was the, um, the key takeaway that I got from your story. Uh, I think that a lot of people had said, you know, voting fraud is very rare. Um, but you actually did the work, did, found the data, and proved that's actually the case. Um, tell me exactly how rare voting fraud really is based on the, the numbers you looked at. Yeah, so when you're a reporter, your inbox is full of political groups on the left and the right, and they spout off. And folks on the left will say, voting fraud is a hoax and it's a myth, and that's not true. And folks on the right will say, it's rampant and it's a big problem. And so we sought whatever information we could get from these states to quantify what are the credible allegations that prosecutors are bringing to court to say this is an actual crime, this is provable. The data showed that roughly 200 prosecutions occurred between the midterms in 2018 when Trump started raising these allegations of fraud until we were able to complete the project. Yeah. Um, let's just kind of uh, quantify that. So you said t around 200? That's right. That's 200 out of how many votes cast during that time? So during this time period, there were hundreds of millions of votes cast in just federal contests. Um, you know, some of these infractions, though, occurred in local contests. So 
extrapolate that even further. You know, you're talking, you know, primaries. You're talking midterms, not just the presidential. Uh, you're talking local contests and races as well. But, you know, 200's not nothing. Um, so let's talk about some of those, the 200. You got some stories behind those. Uh, it sounds like some of them were sort of minor uh, infractions, in right? That's right. So the bulk of these prosecutions were for minor infractions. You know, people that were registering um, unlawfully. Let's say they were an immigrant that didn't have the legal right to register. Folks that were voting on behalf of a loved one um, in the presidential contest in 2020. Right. You you highlighted, uh, I think that was the case in New Mexico, where uh, a guy uh, wasn't able to vote because they said, oh, you already voted. And he said, oh, I, I'm the victim of voting fraud. Someone voted in my name. Um, you know, and so the, you know, the prosecutors there had to investigate that. And uh, w- uh, there was a, an interesting resolution to that case. Uh, why don't you tell us what that was? Yeah. So this this poor New Mexico man thought that he was a victim of voting fraud, that someone had stolen his identity and had voted on his behalf in Florida, where he had lived before. Well, he told the police in Florida and they wound up taking the trail all the way to the man's own father. Um, and this is all backed up in a criminal complaint there. And, you know, the father said basically that he was really upset with the way the country was going. And, you know, the complaint alleges that, you know, he told the police that he cast it, you know, even though knowing that his son was in another state. It's always the ones closest to you. Uh, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, like that, you know, that seems like more of a misunderstanding than a you know, threat to democracy. I mean, to be fair, this, you know, the guy's father did cast a ballot fraudulently. He voted twice, which is very illegal. But, you know, it sounds like that was, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you found with, were, were cases that were, you know, not these like widespread conspiracies to like stuff ballots and things like that. That's exactly right. So the bulk of these things were penny ante, Right. It's someone, you know, breaking rules here. It's someone registering where they shouldn't. It's someone, you know, trying to run for a race in a place where they don't live. There were some cases, however, that were serious. So in 2018, there was a congressional race in North Carolina that had to be redone because of ballot harvesting and concerns about whether or not people were actually voting um, the way that it said they had on absentee ballots. Well, we should really briefly explain what ballot harvesting is. And that, yes, that was a really serious, you know, very well-publicized case. So ballot harvesting, uh, I, by my understanding, it's where, you know, someone fills out an absentee ballot and then another person comes by and collects that absentee ballot uh, for them and turns it in. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. And they refer to the harvesting because, you know, folks that have concerns about this believe that it's one individual as sort of the point person for collecting lots and lots of ballots. And the concern there is the trustworthiness of the actual votes cast. Um, So it could be concern over one person maybe adjusting the ballot that someone else filled out or someone taking advantage of someone that isn't used to filling out a ballot and helping them complete it and bring it in. And the concern there is, okay, can we trust this individual that's maybe not related to this person to you know, help them carry out their wishes properly? And so states across the country have different rules for whether or not quote-unquote ballast harvesting can occur. 
and some states are more strict and some states are more loose. Um, and then there was another uh, situation that you found w- which had there been uh, actual, you know, cases of fraud could have been serious. And I'm thinking of the situation in Nevada that you found where there were allegations of, you know, I think upwards of more than 8,000 uh, fraudulently registered voters. But uh, it turned out to be not quite as serious as that, right? That's right. So in Nevada, like several other states where President Biden narrowly defeated Trump in 2020, um, the GOP there has been seeking out potential allegations for fraudulent activity. And in one complaint that they submitted to the Secretary of State's office, they alleged that there were over 8,000 improperly registered individuals who were registered at a business address. Um, but an analysis by the Secretary of State found that actually the, almost all of them were businesses that normally house people. You're talking, you know, apartment buildings, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I guess te- technically, an apartment building is a uh, is a business address, so that would make sense. Um, let's take a big step back, though, and talk about what all of this means, because you know we're talking about voting fraud. There's a big conversation in the country around voting fraud, uh, and you know, Republican uh, officials are sort of leading that conversation, specifically Republicans tied to former President Trump. Um, You spoke with someone who uh, former President Trump feuded with, Brad Raffensperger, the uh, Republican Secretary of State in Georgia. Uh, He would not go along with the president's wishes to overturn election results in that state and uh, earn the ire of the former president. Tell me about your conversation with him. What did he have to say about all this? Yeah. And a focus of our story was reaching out to Republican officials who've, you know, either bucked the trend here or charted a middle course. And Secretary of State Raffensperger is one of these individuals that rooted out what he could and investigated what he could and just called the balls and strikes. That sort of behavior kind of shows both sides of the coin here, right? And that's that there is such a thing as voting fraud, right? But the limited instances of it don't accumulate enough to really change many elections. And so, you know, Raffensperger had a team of literally armed investigators with policing backgrounds to go and investigate fraud allegations. And they came up with a few, you know, there were many allegations that they pursued and Whatever they found that, you know, was colorably fraudulent, they submitted and referred to prosecutors. But at the end of the day, it was only a few dozen things, right, for felony voting or for, you know, folks that voted twice but didn't have intent to do so. Um, And because of that, there just wasn't nearly enough, you know, allegations there to even plausibly question the result. And then finally, let's talk about talking about voting fraud. Um, you know, th- as you mentioned, you know, there are around 200 or so uh, in, uh, instances of voting fraud prosecutions that you found through this project out of hundreds of millions of ballots cast during that time. Um, but the people that you talked to, the, the state elections officials, seem really worried that just talking about voting fraud can actually sort of undermine confidence in democracy, in the electoral process. How do we talk about this without kind of doing that? Is there a way to discuss this or should is this something that 
it's harmful to even bring up? Well, since I'm a reporter, I have a bias toward always talking issues out. But I think the main problem is listening to the political polls, right, and believing them. So in our story, we have information from this University of Miami professor named Joseph Uzinski, who studies conspiracy theories in political science. And every single election, there's about 40% on both Republican and Democrat side who thinks that the election's rigged against them, whether it's for voter suppression on the Democrat side or if it's for voter fraud on the Republican side. And that sort of shows the lie that really in between there, there are real problems with voting fraud, but they're so rare as to not actually create a fundamental problem with our elections. And so the secretaries of state, you know, they want you to believe that your election officials, the bipartisan teams at local offices are doing their best to count the votes as honestly as they can. And that the statewide officials and prosecutors are trying to take on the cases that make sense and matter. Um, there's a lot of these cases that don't get brought because they're so penny ante, because the folks are difficult to track down and find because they're, you know, migrants and immigrants that aren't registered at times. And so there are a lot more cases that could probably get brought across the country. But in the end, it still really wouldn't matter. You know, and it's interesting that you mentioned polls. I hadn't thought about that, the role that that polls play here. But you're right, because they sort of set expectations before an election that if you if you support a candidate and you see a poll showing that your candidate is going to win, maybe win by a lot, and then your candidate doesn't win, it, it's almost logical to uh, you know, think, well, then if my candidate didn't win and these polls are so wrong, it must be because of voting fraud. It must be because the other side cheated. Is that something that, that you heard from from the folks that you talked to, that that polling plays a role in this kind of expectation setting and, and um, you know, priming the pump for, for these conspiracy theories? Not as much the actual polls where folks are questioned and asked for their thoughts, as much as the comments and messaging from the political leaders that they believe in and trust, right? So, you know, a good example of this is Professor Yuzinski says, you know, we wouldn't have 60% or more Republicans thinking that Donald Trump actually won the election if he wouldn't be constantly saying so. You know, if he repeats it again and again and again, folks are going to believe that this person they trust and look up to is telling them the truth. Um, and similar comments are said about C.C. Abrams, the Democratic contender for the Georgia um, governor's office who lost, you know, a close election there. The idea there is there are some people who, um, you know, say, oh, she, her, she was robbed, like, you know, uh, she really should be governor. And, and it sounds like, you know, she hasn't maybe some people are criticizing her for not doing enough to dispel that myth. Precisely. Yeah. And the underlying thread here is Americans have to be skeptical about the things that their political leaders are telling them um, and, you know, look for facts and, you know, sort of issue the political messaging. All right. Well, that was uh, Alex Ebert, a uh, Bloomberg government correspondent joining us from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Dave. Take it easy. Three. Two, one. 
And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Marist. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. We had help from Cheryl Sines and Kathy Rizzo. Our editor is Jessica Coombs. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLAW. That's B-L-A-W. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next week. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.